This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We began the week on Victoria Day, the traditional kickoff to summer, although it certainly did not feel like that because of the rainy weather and the pandemic. It was also the day before the beginning of stage one of Ontario's COVID-19 economic recovery. Libby Snymer was joined by our Zoomer squad to talk about the reopening and whether it will take away from the terrible situation in long-term care. Here are Zoomer Media VP David Kravitz, Zoomer Magazine Senior Editor Peter Mugridge, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. In April, I think the Premier suggested that, that some of the population may have to continue to self-isolate as the province reopens. Uh, in the absence of a vaccine. I don't know that that's so realistic to continue to ask people to self-isolate, but there's no question that older adults and people with compromised immune systems will have to remain vigilant. Um, we'll have to continue to, you know, wear masks. We'll, we'll, we'll have to keep tabs on their health. We'll have to continue to maintain sort of that, that physical distance that's been required of us, but, but not just older adults, um, you know, as the world starts to reopen, I think the responsibility is on all of us to continue to do those things, not just for our own health and safety, but particularly for the health and safety of older adults. Peter? You know, Libby, at the beginning you mentioned, um, you know, now that the economy is reopening, well, we lose track of um, of uh, the long-term care issue. And, and I think now that it's opening, we should double down on long-term care because there's going to be so many more people in uh, in the community that are carrying this disease and we need to you know refocus our efforts on protecting long-term care homes now that there are more people out there i'm not quite sure how tomorrow is going to be different than today Mm -hmm. um maybe it's going to be imperceptible i mean i have gone to a neighborhood pharmacy many times during this lockdown i have walked down to a neighborhood a grocery store which has six-foot separation tapes on the sidewalk outside and will only allow 30 people inside. Some people are wearing masks, some are not. Everybody's kind of respecting this, to Marissa's point, but I don't quite... I think lockdown means very different things for different people, and I think the biggest thing is whether you can go back to a business that has been closed down. That'll be the big difference. Will we go back to restaurants? Will we be able to get a haircut? I mean, these are the things that I guess will be the most dramatic at first, but I don't, I don't see a big change for seniors as compared to other age groups in the population. The other aspect to all this is getting the consumer to come back to retail. You know, in, in China, we've seen the consumer afraid to come back, and, uh, and economic activity has really slowed there even after the restrictions have been lifted. So... Um, you know, it's one thing for Trudeau and Ford to say the economy is going to come roaring back, but they have to convince people that it's safe to go out there and, you know, and start spending or the economy won't come roaring back. You know, 
I, I think that's a good point, but I also think it's a function of how the perception is of how bad it's been uh, until the comeback. If you look at Canada, um, on Quebec, with about a quarter of our population, has 60% of the fatalities have been in Quebec, 33% have been in Ontario, meaning 7% in the entire rest of the country combined. So if I'm a retail store maybe in Calgary where Alberta has, you know, under, I think, about 40-something deaths, uh, I might feel a lot more bullish about resuming uh, my my past life than if I live in Montreal or in Toronto. To your point, David, I'm not so sure, uh, especially when I see pictures of uh, and video of what is going on in the United States. And even uh, this weekend from New York, of all places, that is the epicenter. And I saw pictures of crowds of, of you know, younger people near bars, hanging out, having a good time. And, and uh, that kind of reopening over there next door to us is happening, absent, uh, you know, the kind of benchmarks that public health people are looking for. By contrast, Texas, which has the same population as New York, if you combine New York, New Jersey, you've got 28 million people, 38 thousand deaths, 42% of the entire United States in New York, Texas, same population, 1,153 deaths. Mm. So uh, you're going to be a lot more confident about going on. Texas is reopening a lot Mm -hmm. more vigorously than New York. And the crowd you described would be, and I think you're completely correct here. I mean, that, that was, Cuomo hasn't said hit the beaches, you know, this is in defiance of state, uh, uh, regulations, whereas Texas and uh, California, Florida are cautiously reopening already, and they have fatality rates that are less than 5% of what New York's rate is. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Fight Back's Monday, Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Ontario's doctors are weighing in on the gradual reopening of the province. The Ontario Medical Association has released a paper setting out five public health pillars necessary for a safe return. On holiday Monday, Libby was joined by the new president of the OMA, Dr. Samantha Hill, who spoke about the unexpected challenge the pandemic has provided. We have, as a profession, really come together in our response to this. And I think that that really indicates how important membership unity is and how much we can do when we are united. The idea of membership burnout is even more critical right now. We're seeing community health care infrastructure close in a variety of places, mostly because of financial concerns, but the burnout aspect can't be undermined there. It's, people are struggling. They have struggled hard for a very long time. And this, like for many others, not in medicine, might be the last straw. And the gender equity lens is also really interesting because we have some real evidence that COVID-19 is hitting people disproportionately. And uh, we know amongst that that fee-for-service is a gendered fee statement, and women physicians, frankly, are suffering slightly more than male physicians are. And we'll see that in the shutdowns as far as which clinics shut down first and whether they're male or female-owned. So that's 
that's all stuff that's going to come to light. It plays through here very dramatically. You've uh, released these five pillars, and, and just very briefly, you want people to continue and maybe to step up personal protective measures like masks and distancing and testing and contact tracing and uh, targeting uh, approaches to different parts of the population. So from what you see so far, is the province's approach in line with what you think is necessary? Well, so what we're really trying to address is um, how we reopen, not necessarily when we reopen. And so what I mean by that is that we know that the government's trying to find a balance between restarting the economy, reopening society, which is fundamentally important. The fiscal and psychological consequences of COVID-19 cannot be overstated while still trying to contain the virus. And it's, it's a hard call and it's a hard decision to make. The five pillars that we've discussed are really practical, common sense steps um, based on emerging evidence, best practices, learnings from other jurisdictions. And so when we reopen, obviously that's up to the government, but we do have some concerns about Things like personal protective equipment. Do we have enough of a supply chain? Contact tracing. Do we really have enough manpower and motivation? And even the public compliance, which is that fifth pillar, it's been the fundamental reason, I would say, why we've done as well as we have. And as we change the guidelines and we change the rules, it's going to be hard to follow for a lot of people. They're not going to know exactly where that line is. The chief medical officer of health said, I believe it was yesterday, that at this point, the split for the spread is 50-50 split between the community and long-term care. And he was flummoxed about that. He would have thought that community spread would be dropping more than that. Do you have a view of that? Were you out on that beautiful weekend day two days ago? I went out, um, I don't know, for 10 minutes, as I usually do, as I have done every day for the last 10 weeks for a walk around my block. And I'm in downtown Toronto. And I was stunned by the number of people in groups of threes and fours walking around. It's without masks, mostly, as you said. I don't know for certain, but I really doubt that those were all single household units. I certainly haven't seen that for the last eight weeks. And so I I do wonder, I do wonder about people's ability to continue with that social distancing and with all those protective measures in the absence of really strong guidance about it. Would you expect that split, the the balance to tip even more into the community as we reopen? I do, actually. I think that now that we have our eyes on long-term care, um, I'm really hopeful, anyhow, that we're going to do a much better job of protecting those populations but as we relax the social rules and reopen businesses, I do think we'll see a second wave and maybe even a third and fourth wave. And while that's not the end of the world, um, what we have to make sure is that those waves don't get out of control. It's normal to see little surges, local surges, but we want to make sure that we don't overwhelm the healthcare system. And for a healthcare system like ours, it's usually running near capacity. That's a very fine line. OMA President Dr. Samantha Hill in conversation with Libby Snymer this past Monday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Our Tuesday strategy panelists got together virtually following the Prime Minister's announcement, which expanded eligibility for the emergency business account. It will now include small businesses who hire contractors, as well as those who pay through dividends. 
Karen Stintz is the CEO of Variety Village, Charles Bird, managing principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and John Capobianco is senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. They also joined Libby on the same day retail business owners were allowed to reopen their stores as long as the shops have a street entrance. I think that people are going to approach this like they've approached the, 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 the sort of the pandemic. Um, certainly, the early stages, everybody was was quite concerned, and, and obviously, rightly so, and and staying at home. And I think that you know, given the fact that we've seen a little bit of loosening up um, from province to province in Ontario, I think the premier again continues to do a good job in being safe about how he opens up everything. I think that you know, people are going to go out to these stores and really just want to be able to experience sort of, you know, what the new normal is going to be. Uh, But certainly just getting out of the house and and being able to go into a store and buy something actually there uh, will give a huge psychological boost to to people's morale. Um, And I think there'll be others who will just, you know, will just continue to stay inside and be safe and 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 wait till wait till things uh, like health the health authorities and, and premiers and, and politicians open up things a bit more. Um, but I'm also hearing you know positive signs about vaccines that are being tested now on on, on folks, and I'm not sure that that we'll see anything live coming out you know by the end of the year. But certainly that's that's the uh, the optimistic view is that we might might be able to see something by year end. Uh, the prime minister extended. I mean, this is one of the things that I've seen, and and I don't know if it's being flexible or what is that every time the government announces some kind of aid for someone, then somebody else puts up their hand and says, what about me? And today they expanded the emergency business account. There were complaints by small businesses, either the ones that hire independent uh, contractors rather than employees or the ones that pay themselves through dividends as opposed to salary. And they are now included in emergency aid. John, is that a good thing? I think it is. Uh, you know, uh, I think what, what we're seeing, quite, quite frankly, Olivia, is, is, you know, those that are that are slipping through the cracks and, and um, you know, small businesses and others. And I think the, the government, by and large, has done a really good job federally and, and also provincially in trying to capture all of those that, that are affected by, by the pandemic in, in some way, shape or form. And, and we're also seeing, you know, extensions of programs. We saw the, the wage subsidy program now being extended to the end of summer. Uh, because folks know that that you know June was coming up and and uh, and, and th- that wasn't going to sort of solve the, the problem, knowing that things weren't going to get back to normal at least until after then. So so I'm not surprised, and and I'm, and I'm quite frankly you know pleased that that the prime minister did this because there are a lot of small businesses and hair salons and others that that you know might not have fit into one program or another, but are seeing this as something that they might be able to tap into and help them over the next little bit. I would just also note that the government has extended the Canadian emergency wage subsidy through to the end of the summer. The message from the Prime Minister is that employers need to be hiring back their employees now in anticipation of the various measures that are being enacted provincially to slowly reopen the economy. But that will vary directly with the uh, amount of demand there is on the part of consumers. I mean, as many have noted, you can open up the whole shebang in one go, and if people don't have the confidence to to go out in public and and to shop, then obviously it's going to be a slow process. Karen, when can your facility reopen, or do you have sense of that? I don't have any idea, to be candid. Uh, we We run multiple programs out of our facility. We run programs for kids. We run a fitness center for the community. 
We run a day program for adults with intellectual disabilities, and we run a rehab program for seniors that are recovering from strokes. And in the fall, we run an outreach program for kids for the TDSB, and they come here on a field trip. So we already know there's lots of things we won't be able to offer because kids won't have field trips next year until the government gives us a sense that we can offer a camp program. We may not be able to reopen our fitness center, but can we offer camp? And so, you know, again, having the emergency wage benefit is helpful to a degree, but I can't bring people on staff and have them not do anything if I can't open to the public. And so we're in the situation where we're waiting and it, you know, the emergency wage benefit is only so helpful in that if I don't have a job for someone at the end of this, I, I don't know how much sense it makes to keep them on the wage subsidy. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. On Tuesday, the governing PCs at Queen's Park announced the launch of an independent commission into the devastation caused by COVID-19 in Long long-term care homes. It's to begin in September, but there are no details yet on terms of reference, membership, leadership of the commission, and reporting timelines. Critics have been calling for a full public inquiry, but the Ford Tories say time is of the essence. Libby was joined by a panel of experts to discuss. Teresa Armstrong, NDP long-term care critic. Jane Medes, lawyer with the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. And Marissa Lennox, chief policy officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. Frankly, with what we've seen occur in long-term care settings, I'm not sure a two-year inquiry is the best answer either. We don't exactly have the luxury of time given the volume of people entering these facilities daily. Now, you know, Ontario is the first province to announce a wide-scale investigation into long-term care, and I think should be applauded for that. They know a commission, you know, will have some landmines for them, and so this isn't without risk for them. Uh, At the same time, what I would say is I would caution against any process that takes time and costs money, and that'll reveal much of what we already know. There are things that we need to do now, and there are things that we need to do to future-proof long-term care. And a lot of that, as I said, we do know, staffing, training, equipping homes with ample supplies of PPE, looking at the infrastructure and the buildings themselves. So if the outcome of this process is that it comes up with a series of recommendations that the government will actually implement swiftly, then I think that that's a good thing. You know, you're launching this in September, but is there anything you're going to do beforehand? Because as you say, Marissa, you know, we know what the problems are. Jane? Launching a commission does not preclude the government from moving ahead with things that we already know. We know, and we've known for many years, for example, that four bedrooms in long-term care are not the way to go. So four people in a bedroom. We already know that. And so we know that that's, you know, that's been a problem. So I think the government can, you know, start to move towards the issue of how do we get rid of those? I don't think that um, a, uh, an inquiry or a commission, you know, precludes them from doing many of the things that we already know. What a, what a commission or inquiry should be looking at are the things that we don't know. So why one home, for example, which is an older home that has, you know, the four bed, uh, basic room accommodation, 
Why did that home have, you know, the virus go through the entire home where another one had a person and it didn't go through the home? Like, what are the differences? What, what are those things that are the lessons that we can learn? And, you know, between what is a commission and an inquiry, I'm not exactly sure what's in the government's head at the moment. My understanding would be this would still be a public inquiry, but what he's talking about is not having, potentially having um, public hearings perhaps into this. So it's not quite clear legally what they're talking about. I think public um, hearings are crucial in this, and it is not the whole part of it. And there will be lots of different parts of an inquiry, and that it depends on how the government sets it up. But if you just have a commission that's set up by the government and they appoint people and, you know, don't have public hearings, you lose the ability to certainly have public scrutiny, and you also lose the ability to have many of the public um, uh, participate. Having the other voices there are, is extremely important, and being able to probe those questions as to what happened, um, really, it needs to be, we need to have hearings. And I agree, there is issues around time, for sure. But I think there's many parts of this and inquiries can have different parts and have, you know, interim reports that they put out with the things that we know and that can be easily done on sort of that paper review. And then there's the part that has to go public. And I'd like to bring in Teresa Armstrong, who is the Ontario NDP home care and long-term care critic. Your leader blasted the creation of this commission. Uh, the fact is that we don't really know anything about what it's going to look like. Uh, what's the problem with it, in, in your view? Well, I think there has to be um, a real transparency around, a transparency around um, the questions that we've had. Um, for long-term care, quite frankly, for decades under uh, successive governments, as well as going forward, you know, this is a very, obviously, a very serious time, and the pandemic has only revealed the major cracks that were there already and and really brought them to the surface. This uh, commission, this government commission, you know, there's there's just so many holes in a process like that, and it doesn't give families um, the direct answers that they're looking for. So a public transparency inquiry, this is an opportunity that we've had before under the wet law for inquiry. We were, as the NDP, we were calling for an open phase two into that public inquiry to find and fix the systemic problems. That was ignored. Now we're in a position under a conservative government with this pandemic uh, you know, thousands of lives have been lost. We know that, you know, the highest percentage of them, um, of course, were in long-term care homes, and the elderly are the most vulnerable. And we need to make sure we can address the problem so that going towards the future, going to the future, we're not repeating the same mistakes. Teresa Armstrong, NDP long-term care critic, Jane Medes, lawyer with the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Pat in Toronto phoned about the public commission into long-term care. We are hearing some generalizations about for-profit versus not-for-profit. I think this comes down in many cases to management. That's one of the things. 
And that's what's got to come out in the inquiry. Uh, one of the other aspects, I think the Ontario government oversight, and while I have no experience with regard to uh, this aspect of the government, I know from dealing with the environment, they are very slow, and a lot of times they just sort of sit back and let things happen. So I think there's probably some blame for the Ontario government. But lastly, is the issue of who's going to pay for all of this. It all sounds great until it comes to who's going to pay, and then everybody is looking the other way. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jim in Pickering, who phoned with his suggestions for clothing stores to avoid having shoppers trying on the clothes while we're still in a pandemic. Well, you have a sample product there. So it could be a jacket in a clothing store, a jacket or a shirt or something of that nature. And, and you have one there just for sizing not the general merchandise that is for sale, and so that you could bring that out and have them try it, and then that's isolated. So you deal with that however you choose. And with the hardware, yes, you have a sample product. If you have to have the feel of the tool, it's that sample product, and then it is wiped down carefully after. But when I go to a store, I know my size, but if you buy a different brand, it may not be the same. So you have to take out all the little pins, unbutton all those buttons, and da-da-da. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.